Have you ever noticed that it seems like humanity is fixated on the end of all things as of late? I mean, you can actually see this if you even were just to go through Netflix and look at some of the recent movies that have come out that are talking about how they would expect the apocalypse or the end of all things to come about. Uh, You'll find all kinds of movies that have uh, all kinds of expectations for the way in which the world will end. So you'll find movies that talk about uh, alien invasions or global warming, solar explosions, overpopulation, a global virus, artificial intelligence uh, outnumbering humanity and taking them over, or zombies. Uh, Some even talk about supervillains like Kronos taking over Earth and destroying it. It is all really cheery stuff to think about, isn't it? Well, it's not just our movies. If you look at scientists like uh, Stephen Hawking, who uh, recently, uh, before his death, said that he actually believes he predicted the end of the world, kind of like Jim Hagee, right? Except his version was that we would die by 2600 because we would have global warming to the point that our temperature on the face of earth would be around 400 degrees. He's kind of like John Hagee and others who are trying to predict the exact date of the end of the world. Of course, we know that the son says that only the father knows the date when the world will end. But the response to the end that you find in these movies usually ends in folks doing one of two things, either fearfully taking flight, running from whatever danger it is that's coming, or taking arms to fight. Now, usually when they run, they don't know where they're going to run and sometimes get lost in space. But it's striking to me that both in the movies The End of All Things and Lost in Space, they may know what they are running from, maybe, but they don't know where they're running to. In other words, the end is coming and they don't know where to go. Now at other times, the fight, uh, the fight seems to be against some kind of invincible enemy. But I'm wondering, do you think about the end of all things in any kind of serious way? Not just for entertainment or sport, but actually for the way that it ought to affect, impact, shape, and change your life. Is there a way in which the end of all things is actually shaping your life and your decisions today. See, the end of all things is actually a very biblical idea if you read the Bible. We are promised that Jesus is actually coming back. He is gone, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. No one escapes the judgment of God. Death is no escape from Christ's judgment. And on that day, we find that there is no enemy of God that will survive. But catch this, the Bible offers a unique hope. A unique hope that other religions and the movies that you will watch do not offer. And that is that Christ, Christ gives us the hope of a new home and a newly restored universe freed from sin, the fall, and all of its effects. Doesn't that sound like a great place? That's the hope of the believer. But here's the question I have for you this morning as we're thinking about this. It's this, what does the end of all things matter for anything, if anything, today? Should it affect today? Well, we're back in our Hopeful Exile series. We've been in 1 Peter. Uh, this morning we're in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11 that Natalie just read to us. And you've been noticing that Peter has been telling the Christians of the churches that he's been writing to how they should live through and endure suffering. And this morning we're going to see that he is actually talking about how they ought to live in light of the end of all things. He says there's a way in which you should live. Now, if you're just joining us, let me kind of catch you up to where Peter's been. He's writing to a group of mostly Gentile Christians. 
Christians who have been outside of the covenant of God living throughout the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And so they've been living there, facing all kinds of persecutions, ranging from social pressure that you might feel in the home to a political pressure that you might feel from the government. That's sporadic. It's not all the time, but it does come sometimes. And so as they're facing all of these sufferings, Peter is telling them how to live. Now, our section began in 1 Peter 3.8. And you'll remember there that he began to talk about how Christians ought to, to live with those who are non-Christians, those who are outside of the new covenant of God. Well, here what he's going to do is actually turn and shift his focus from outside towards others to inside towards how they ought to love themselves. And he says that there's a way in which Christians ought to love Christians uniquely in light of the last day. Now, our big idea this morning that I hope that we see here is this. It is this, and this is for Christians. Uh, You should glorify God by loving your local church as you look for the return of Christ. That's the big idea that we're going to be thinking about this morning. You should glorify God by loving your local church as you look for the return of Christ. Now, there's all kinds of application here for non-Christians and and those who are in all kinds of different places, but that's our main point, I think, that Peter makes this morning. That's right. Thinking about the apocalypse should lead us to love better. Did you catch that? Thinking about the apocalypse should lead us to love better. It shouldn't make us angry or ugly, but to love better. That's what we're going to be thinking about. Well, before we get to our first point, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come to your word, Father, we need to hear from you. Uh, This morning we hope to hear from the oracles of God. That is your very words. We are looking to speak your words after you. And Father, we pray that you would use them to raise up life in this body. Father, that you would transform hearts. That you would give hope to the hopeless. Father, that you would uh, give us a a longing to see others come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That you would give us a longing to be more holy as you are holy. And Father, that you would save many through this body. Transform them, shape them into your image. Lord, do this through the preaching of your word even today. In your name we do pray. Amen. Well, here's the first thing that we see. It's this. You need to keep your life and keep your minds for the sake of your prayers. That's what he says in verse 7. You need to keep your life and your minds for the sake of your prayers. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. So that is the big idea, and he's going to start drawing from that what we ought to do in light of that. And he says this, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, as you look at this, uh, you'll notice that it looks like the end of all things is supposed to be kind of like an alarm clock for Christians. It's meant to awaken you to who God is, who you are, and how we ought to live. Now, the Bible here presents the cross is signaling the last days, a new epic in Christian history. And all that awaits is the return of Jesus Christ. Now here he's connecting two words that really are kind of the same. He says that you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Words that carry similar meanings. And they really just mean to be awake and alert. Now this contrasts strongly with the image of the Gentiles that precedes it up above where he told us that they are getting drunk and angry. And that they are actually angry at God's people because they are actually sober. Which I think means like literally not drunk 
But it also would imply that they're thinking in clear-headed kind of ways. We find that in 4.3. Now, three times in this short letter, Peter has exhorted these Asian Christians to be sober. He does it in 1.13. He, he does it again in 4.7, and we'll see later that he does it in 5.8. Now, these words really just carry this idea of a kind of gospel wakefulness, right? The, the, the fact that you are awake in the gospel to the reality of what is going on all around you. You're not in the dark. You're not confused. You have an idea. You, you understand, according to the Word of God, where this story is going. And you're, you're actually living in, you're stepping into that reality, now, I find this subtly humorous coming out of the lips of Peter. Now, you remember who Peter is. He's the guy that struggled to stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was about to go to the cross. Three times he fell asleep as Jesus said, stay awake, the moment is at hand. And three times Peter fell asleep. And three times in this letter he is telling them to be sober-minded, stay awake, don't fall asleep. I'm speaking from experience. Like stuff's happening, Right? You'll remember that Jesus slept like a baby as the storm raged against his boat in Mark 4. And the disciples were terrified. But as Jesus approached the cross, he was awake. He could not sleep. And it was the disciples that did nothing but slumber. And here Peter says, a gospel wakefulness enables you to pray as you ought To stay awake and pray. That's what Jesus did as he saw the cross coming. That's what we ought to do as we see Jesus coming back. And and, and I believe the image here of prayer amidst this last day warning is this. We need to remember that even as that day is coming, that we are utterly dependent on God. Isn't prayer just, isn't that what that is? A declaration of the reality that we are utterly dependent upon God? That every every morsel that we eat actually comes from his hand. That everything that we need actually comes from him and through him and to him. See, a clear mind tells you not only what you need to run from as the end of days approaches, but whom you need to run to. And the answer to both is found in God. See, the return of Christ should help them. It should keep them awake and dependent. So Peter says, keep your gospel wits about you as you see the end. Now, if you trace this idea back to the source, it looks like what Peter is saying is that your prayer life says something about how clearly you are living in light of the end of all things. Are you hearing me? Does that make sense? In other words, if you were to start with your prayer life today and see how you are praying, there is a good indication that it might say something about how seriously you are taking the end of all things coming. Have you ever noticed how serious sickness and death drive us to prayer? You know, they say something about, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. I'm not sure that that's true, but I think there is this kind of underlying understanding that when life gets really scary and we know that we have nowhere else to go and that we are fearful for the end, that we need to do business with Jesus. And that's what drives us to our knees in prayer. See, I think it's because for the believer, when we are confronted with the reality of coming before Christ, we sense afresh our dependence on Christ alone acutely in a new and a sweet and a beautiful way that we wish we did always. But in this moment, we meet on sacred ground with our Father in a way that we should have had before. And a number of things can distract us from our prayers, to be sure. Uh, stress, being tired, 
sin, bad theology. And here, losing the sobering effects of Christ's return in the gospel that propel us to run to the throne of grace. So let me encourage you. Let me just encourage you as a Christian. If you're looking at your your prayer life right now, maybe what you are thinking in your mind is, I need to be like that old Puritan pastor who was up at 4 a.m. praying until 6 so they could really get work done. Uh, Let's not start there. Let's start with 10 minutes a day. In, In that 10 minutes, spend half of the time reading some scripture. A few verses of scripture. doesn't have to be a lot. And just asking yourself, what do I see about the character of God here that I can praise, that's praiseworthy? And what does this say about me? What do I need to confess today in light of this text? And, and, and how am I grateful afresh for Jesus today to know that God loves me, not because I'm perfect in this area, but because of who Jesus is? And then spend some time thinking about how can I pray for my family and for my church and for my non-Christian friends? And my guess is, is that your 10 minutes will be up. But if you were to do that 10 minutes a day, that 70 minutes a week, 70 minutes more than what you were doing, what a great opportunity to commune with God and to remind yourself that the end of all things is coming and I need to be ready and I want others to be ready. But Peter furthers this apocalyptic musing here. Uh, Notice second that he says in verse 8 that the end should cause us to prioritize something and that is loving one another. He says here's the priority that should come to light as you're thinking about the end of all things. Notice that he says, above all, we're going to see that in just a minute here. Now, I think this is Peter's version of coming close, right? Above all. Oh, oh, like the most important thing. Well, I want to listen closely to what the most important above all thing is. And here he says, the most important thing to get ready for Jesus' return is what? To throw a really awesome party, right? Now, he's not against that, but that's not what he says. Uh, What about um, maybe you need to build a a bunker in the ground with plenty of food and water? Is that what you do when you see the end of all things coming? No. Uh, No, in fact, what he says in verse 8 is this. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I mean, maybe that's not where you were thinking Peter would go. But here he says you need to keep loving one another. Now, You've heard me say before, there's some 61 another's in the New Testament. And I believe this is almost technical language for the kind of love that Christians should show in Christian community, the thing that we call the local church. It is a committed relationship where you're saying, we're going to sit together like weekly, we're going to meet together around the preaching of the Word of God, we're going to baptize folks together, we're going to sit under elders, we're going to practice communion together, we're going to do these things and actually be known as an identifiable group of people. And I think this one anothering, that is really the idea that's carried in this word one another. So it's not talking about loving others in general or loving your neighbors, like those are good things. But here he's like really sort of like trying to dial it in to a very specific kind of love that we should have for one another. Now, I think Peter gets this from Jesus himself. Uh, You'll remember in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's just washed their feet. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, as I have loved you, so ought you to love one another. And by this kind of love, all men will know that you are my disciples. And I believe that that loving one another is a picture of the kinds of love that committed Christians should have with one another. Now, just to be square, loving one another doesn't exclude evangelism. So he's not saying, like, Jesus is coming back, so don't worry about evangelism anymore. No, it's actually 
quite the opposite. It's that we misunderstand the importance of loving one another as part of our evangelism. See, it's, it's actually the church that is the display of the power of the gospel unto salvation to a world that is facing the judgment of God. It's the, the, the church that is a beacon of light to a lost and dying world where they need to see not just hear what we say we believe, but see it in live and real time. How do we actually live out the power of the thing that we say that we believe? So just to be clear, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says that the church ought to be an environment where love is not just proclaimed, but where it reverberates. In other words, it's not something that we just talk about. It's actually something that we stir one another up in. And yes, that's with words, but it's not just with words. So you'll notice there in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, the author says, and let us consider how to stir one another up. Do you hear the one another again? To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, right? That's kind of what it means to church. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The last day. The end of all things. So what do you do whenever you see the end coming? You love one another more. And, and what, what if you're doing that? What do you do then? Well, you stir them up to love more. That's what you're doing as you see the end coming. See, we need this because we are so prone left to ourselves, absent of the work of the Holy Spirit, to love one another as we ought to. And Jesus also warns of this in Matthew 24, 12, where he says that his, this love that, that he's been talking about would grow cold at the end of the age. That's where we are. And Peter says, as the end approaches, don't forget the priority of sacrificial love for other Christians. But what does he mean by saying, since love covers a multitude of sins? What is he talking about in that? Like, we love one another since it covers a multitude of sins. Does that mean that, like, by proxy, anybody that I love, like, they're forgiving their sins, like, I'm Jesus? That's not what that's saying. That's not what that's saying. Everybody get that? Okay. I'm not Jesus. We're not Jesus. We serve Jesus. But here I think that what he's doing, he's actually drawing from an Old Testament text in Proverbs, in Proverbs 10, 12. Uh, in that verse, you'll remember that uh, perhaps that the author says, hatred stirs up dissensions, but love covers all wrongs. See, the idea here is that love looks to bear all things, and love looks to look over wrongs for the sake of peace. I love this. You know, this, this is a good corrective to us who think that the most loving thing that we can do is exercise our spiritual gift of seeing how messed up everybody else is, right? And then reminding them of that. That is not the picture of love that the Bible gives. No, here what we find is, is that it's actually something beautiful and different. It is a kind of love that looks to help people that also loves them where they are and seeks to lead them towards the goodness of God. I think that this is beautiful. Sacrificial loves means willingly putting yourself in a place where you might get shot by others and even bitten by those who you're looking to help. That's what it looks like to love others. You know, I have a friend who says that wounded animals can sometimes be the most dangerous because they have nothing to lose and are fighting for their lives. So don't mess with them or you'll get bit. Well, I think that the Christian is actually called to something quite different, right? Right? We're actually called to run into those places, to love those who are in difficult places, and point them to the gospel. There's a lot of wisdom and discernment that's involved in that, but that is the calling of the gospel. So expect when you seek to love others that you could get messy. 
And if you do look to help others and you get messy, it might not mean that you're doing anything wrong, but everything right. Galatians 6, 1 to 2 gives us an image of this. Uh, That's where Paul says to restore someone caught in sin, restoring him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the way that we go about it. Not pride or arrogance, but gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Because you're not better than the person that you're helping. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? Well, it's at least to jump into trouble and to help people and to bear their burdens. And James 5.20 says this, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, because sheep wander, they will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see it? There's a, a kind of way that we are loving people back to Christ for the glory of God. So here's the place where I hope we are as a church. I hope that we are a a place that we are a people that feel like we have relationships with others where we can find deep, meaningful encouragement about evidences of God's grace in our lives. I hope that that's where we're at, where we are a people where we are looking, we are scouring to show others where we see God actively present and active and engaged in their lives. A place where we have relationships where we feel safe to share our shame, our sins, and our sorrows, which, by the way, are not all the same thing. Sensing that God's people will listen with an otherworldly kind of optimism and point us towards the hope in Christ. That we ourselves will be able to use our own histories as testimonies, not of our own grandiose greatness, but the greatness of Christ who has saved us. And that we would see radical sinners like each of us transformed day by day to the very core of who we are, to our very desires, loves, and longings. And that we would be generous and sacrificial with our very lives. That means our money, our time, etc., for the glory of God. Edmund Clowney was writing on this very text, and he says this about the kind of heart condition that we should have towards others. And he writes, unless love can stretch to forgive many sins... It will not avail us or among us sinners. Peter had asked Jesus how many times he must forgive his brother. Remember Peter? He wrote this. He proposed a generous seven times. And Jesus was not impressed. He replied, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Love does not keep score, but grants forgiveness freely to every brother or sister who seeks it. So one day... One way that we do this is through our third point, that's this, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. One way to love one another is through this, and we see this in verse 9. Now here's what's interesting, as the end draws near, notice that Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, I'm thinking like, the end is coming, the apocalypse is raining down, And he says, I think you need to go out and get more cookies for the visitors. Like, kind of a strange place to go, right? Well, the word for hospitality here is interesting. I think he's doing something even more fascinating here than we realize. It's actually a word that combines the words for love and stranger together. So it kind of literally means love of stranger, usually a love for outsiders. But here you'll notice that he actually says the range of meanings It's different in the sense that it also includes insiders, those who are one-anothering. And he says, you need to be hospitable to one-anothers as as much as others, and maybe even more so. 
In other words, this word came to mean more than its constituent parts and carries the idea of opening up your home as good host to those who are living in Christian community with you. See, hospitality was important in the ancient Near East. Uh, That was where you would have travelers who would be coming who didn't have motels, leaving the lights on for them. They They couldn't find a room on Priceline. It was a dangerous day to travel in the ancient Near East. Traveling was dangerous and you were dependent on the hospitality of others. Now, spiritually... You'll remember that we actually come from a long line of hospitable hosts, like Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, where uh, they gave host to some men who ended up being the Lord and angels, uh, unbeknownst to them. Uh, And so they were known as great hosts. But think about this. The apocalypse is coming, and so you need to be more gracious in opening your home to others and do it without grumbling. Why would you grumble if you're being hospitable? Well, Tom Schreiner, the great you know, scholar that he is, says because it's hard to have people into your home and eat your stuff, basically. Um, that's good. I think that's probably at least partly true. Uh, I would also add that there's a potential. I don't know if you've ever had people into your home and you spend time together. Uh, and you can sometimes form kind of consortiums of, um, of uh, grumbling about certain topics and maybe even develop like weird relationships about things you hate and realize you don't really have anything in common beyond, beyond that. So I think there might be some of that as well, like making sure that your heart just has a tendency towards praising God, being grateful for others, and seeking the good, talking about those things that are above, not below. But as Jesus approached the cross, I believe that we have an image in here of something that is very Christ-like. You'll remember that as the end approached for him, as the cross came, and even from his very own cross, it was Jesus that declared, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He was not grumbling about the cross that he had to go to, but he was actually thinking about mercy towards others as the end came. And I think that's the image that we have here. As the end is coming, is your mind about self-preservation or about the lavish mercy of God going out and being extended to others? What is your disposition of heart? The heart of the people who are driven by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that took Christ to the cross, is leading us to think in outward ways. How are we loving others in light of the reality, the very present reality that Jesus is coming back and coming back soon? Well, here in the same way, we look to the great day of Jesus Christ's return And the tendency might be to fight with others and riot and live like there are no consequences or to take flight and run from others and hide. But Peter says, become a home. Become a home where people can find shelter. Shelter from the physical, emotional, and spiritual storms of life as we await Jesus' coming together. Be a shelter. And even more, we point them to the greater life-giving bread that is Jesus Christ himself. He is the food that they need from heaven. Now, can I just like get up in your business for a second? Are you okay with that? I hope that you are. Like I'm a pastor. That's kind of what I'm supposed to do. But how do you see your home? I'm just curious this morning. Just think about it. We have lots of different homes, live in different places, uh, have different styles. You know, some of us are more shabby chic. Some of us are just more shabby, but like just different folks, right? We got different things that we love and appreciate and enjoy, but how do you view your home just in general? Not talking about the decor, but like the nature of the way that God intends you to use your home. You know, I want you to just think about this for a minute. I think that we can see our homes in at least one of two ways. I'm just wondering, maybe you don't fit in these categories, but here are a couple that you just need to be thinking about. The one is we can view our home as a bunker. The other is we can see it as an oasis. 
Now, if you see your home as a bunker, you see it as a place where you hide out from the world, right? You are protecting your own. You are keeping what is outside, outside, what is inside, inside. And you keep the food and water under lock and key, right? Does that sound like your home or the way that you view your home? It is a safe place. And yes, it should be a safe place for sure. But is it a safe place just for you? Or what about the other way that you could view it? You know, another option is to see your home as an oasis in the desert, like literally here in Phoenix, right? But metaphorically as well. Where you are using it and utilizing it to give life to others. You know, this view sees the home as actually an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Intended to give life to others. Uh, we have a number of families who do this really, really well. Uh, we have, and I could name some, I'm not going to name all, but Mark and Paige Sherrod and James and Jamela Newhall and Drew Lynn and Ross Gentle and Scott and Renee Scheider. And I could just go on with people who are constantly bringing people, inviting people into their homes just to encourage and bless them. In fact, I bet if we were to stand up, we're not going to do it this morning, but I bet if we were to stand up right now and we were to say, like, who's been in these people's, one of these people's homes? I bet most of the people in this room would stand up. Now, what does it look like, though, to be a good host? Well, I think that part of being a good host is actually caring about and having a concern for the people that come into your home. And that goes beyond their physical needs, but it's not limited to that. It's at least that. But it's also caring about their spiritual hearts. How are they doing? How is the Lord at work in their lives? Are there ways that you can pray for them? Like you should use your home as a spiritual oasis, a place where people can come and they know that they're going to meet somebody who wants to help them deal with God. Someone who also cares about what they like. And that can be football. That can be, you know, Pinterest. I mean, maybe not Pinterest, but like things like that. Where they really will be cared about. The things that they really care about. See, I think this is a spiritual discipline, hospitality, that helps us stir one another up towards love and good deeds. You know, some, some folks in this room are just one hospitality visit away from actually being lifted up closer towards Jesus Christ because of their time with you. Taking part in a community group is a great way to learn how to be a good host. It's a great way to experience uh, what it's like to be hosted. But we should be about the business of seeing our homes as oases for others. Now, just to help you think about how this practically matters and how this should affect the way that you think about the Bible, um, we talk about eschatology here sometimes. I apologize for using a word that big. Uh, it's a word that really just means the study of end times, the eschaton, latter days, last things that are happening. Uh, we've been actually talking about that all semester on Wednesday nights in our Revelation class, where we've been thinking about what does it look like, the end of the world, what is it that we have to look forward to? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why would I take a class on Revelation and end times? Like, I've got lots of other things that I need to be thinking about today. Well, I think that if we're reading Peter honestly, I believe that if we want to be better host and more hospitable and love one another better, we should be thinking about the book of Revelation. We should think about the last days. We should be putting that on the forefront of our minds so that our, our theology is actually engaging and shaping our orthopraxy or the way that we practice and love others. So don't be surprised if you show up to some Bible study expecting one thing and finding that your life changes in ways that you did not expect or anticipate. It should change the way that we use our homes if we really understand the last days. Uh, let me also say that we need to be hospitable to people different than us. You know, it's really popular these days. Um, th- there's a lot of really good discussion about uh, the effects of racism over centuries in our nation. I think those are great discussions to have. Um, I think one really practical way that we can help with that is actually having you invite different people into your home. 
actually exposing your family, your children, showing them that you have friends that look different than them and that they are one in Christ and valuing them. That is a great way to show that all people are created equal in the sight of God and that those are actually more your brothers and sisters because of what Christ has done for both of you. Great opportunity to do that. Great opportunity for evangelism with those who are different than you. See, hospitality is a great way to fight our fears of others. But there's a fourth thing that we see in this text, and that is this, that we are called to glorify God with our gifts in the church. Did you know that God created you to bring glory to him? That's kind of awesome, right? Like, I don't know what you thought you were living for today, but it was the glory of God, and there's nothing better. Did you see that here, uh, what Peter says in verses 10 to 11 about this? Uh, Look with me again. Here's what he says. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, did you see that Peter actually assumes that every person who has been born again of the Holy Spirit also has a gift from God? Uh, this is the exact thing that we find Paul saying. You can look in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to see that. And when we think about the way that our hearts treat spiritual gifts, if we're honest, our, our hearts don't always do the right thing with, with good things, right? Have y'all noticed that? Like we, we tend to not always do the best thing, even with good things, even spiritual things. Have y'all seen that? Um, I've noticed that. Uh, in fact, when I was reading this text, I was just reminded uh, of a Carly Simon song. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, right? And I think there's a sense in which sometimes when we have our spiritual gifts, we become so vain to think that those gifts are actually about us. Now, some of you are like, I've never heard Carly Simon. Don't worry about it. Just keep moving. It's like most of you, but it's all right. <laughs> but when we think about gifts, we tend to think of ourselves, As consumers, we tend to evaluate, grade, and rank where we stand with and among others based on the goods that we have. And I think that even sometimes translates into the spiritual goods that we have. And we tend to think that there is some direct relationship between our intrinsic value and the gifts that we have such that we're more valuable because of like some particular thing that we're able to do and it's really not us, right? I mean, notice how Peter, like Paul, says that your gifts, they are not fundamentally about you. Catch this. Did you notice what he says in these short verses? He, makes a, he takes a lot of ground here. Here's what he says. Gifts have been given by God, right? They're coming from God to you for God's glory and what? For the good of other Christians. It's like, well, what about me? Like, You forgot the part about how awesome I am. In other words, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, we need to look up to God and and out to others before we ever look into ourselves. And he says, you need to use it, that gift, whatever it is, you might have multiple, you need to use it to serve one another. And then he flattens the plane of spiritual gifts saying this, gifts need to be stewarded just like your homes do. In other words, you have a lot of different gifts in the pantry, they need to be stewarded and managed well. And God gives varied grace or gifts. Now, verse 11 basically categorizes these gifts in in two ways. He says you've got speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, they're both an act of service. 
But if you were to break that down, he said, you know, you've got gifts that generally fit into the speaking category, like preaching, teaching, prophecy, those sorts of things. And then the service category, you know, service uh, would be like deaconing. uh, It would be like being generous, giving, those sorts of things. And so here you'll notice that he says that these are the two kinds of, of gifts. Now, do you see the utter dependence, though, here that we have on God for these gifts? You'll notice that he says the purpose is that in everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, that means that gifts come from the Father to the Christian to be exercised by the power of Jesus Christ to the ultimate end that God might be glorified. And does it make you feel weird at all that you're not in that? That like your glory and your name being made great is not in that? If so, we might have misunderstood the gifts. They're not really all about you. Now, that means that gifts are really for God's glory. Now, this describes both kinds of gifts, both the, the speaking and, and, and the service gifts. And I want to think about both of those. You know, if we think about the way that we speak, you'll notice that he uses this interesting phrase in these verses to describe it. He says, if we speak, he speaks of the oracles of God. Have you heard that term before? It's, it's in the Bible elsewhere, but, but not everywhere. Uh, this phrase is, is a really interesting phrase, and it really communicates that we, if we teach, we are delivering the very words of God. Think about the weight of that. Like, how heavy are God words? Those are the things that we are responsible for bringing to others. You know, it reminds me a lot of the job of a mailman. You know, when you have a mailman, a mailman's job is to deliver the mail that he receives to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want a creative mailman, right? Like, I don't want a creative mailman who takes my mail and he gets it and he's like, well, I'm going to open that up and see what's going on in there. Oh, man, this is horrible. Gosh, I don't know if he wants to see this, right? Like, I'm looking at this and, man, it says that he didn't get the job. Nobody wants to hear that today. Or, or this one, oh, his, his blood pressure is high and he better change his diet. Well, that's not fun. Oh, man, this girl, he thought that liked him, doesn't like him anymore. This is going to completely ruin his week. So uh, here's what I'll do. Let me, let me fix that. Your blood pressure is great. You don't need to change anything, right? Uh, and when it comes to that job, you got the job. It's going to be great when you show up on Monday and think you got the job. And then, by the way, that girl you thought didn't like you and said she didn't want to ever talk to you again, she wants to see you tomorrow. So if you just, like, you just need to hurry on over there and talk to her, she's going to love it. It's going to go great. I don't want to create a mailman. Like, if I'm following that kind of, like, mail service, then my life is going to get to be a wreck really quick. You know, I want a mailman who brings me the very words of God, the trustworthy words, the words that I can build my life on, the words that I can trust to the very end when Jesus comes back. Those are the words that we need. And so a teacher is really going to be uh, discerned in his value based on how well and faithful he is to the words of God and how little he manipulates those words as they come to the people of God. That's our job. So changing the news, changing your mail, it might make you happy for a moment, but it will lead to, to some dangerous repercussions. In short, this means that the value of the words of those who speak is thus saith the Lord, and it rests in how faithful they are to the word of God. See, God calls us to speak the very words of God after him. Now, maybe you're thinking, that sounds super boring. Except that it's the words of God, right? Like, that's, that's a good word to speak again, and to hear, and to trust that it brings life to dead people. It's not the cleverness of the speaker, but the faithfulness of their speech. Now, take note, too, that preaching and teaching the word is an act of service. Remember he said that you're all given ways that you are to serve and you have the speaking gifts and the other gifts. And I would say that if you are preaching rightly, 
If you're teaching the word rightly, it is an act of service and it is a work. You know, I, just to give you a window, I, I have, um, I remember when I first got here, uh, little at the time, Abby uh, asked me, what do you do as a pastor? Like, what does that look like? And I was like, that's a great question. Uh, she got bored listening to me after a while. But um, one of the things that I said was that, you know, I spend about 20 hours a week just in preparing to preach and teach. I spend 20 hours studying the Word in the original languages, writing out my manuscripts, reading commentaries, meditating on how Christ is being exalted uniquely in that text, and how to freshly apply this Word to the context of our people. That's a, that's a really big work, and I have to have fresh stuff every week, right, from the Lord, and the Lord provides it. In fact, I love whenever I'm preparing sermons, I, I have the best job in the world. I really believe that. And often as I'm preparing sermons, break out into prayer as I prepare to preach to you, our body. And I'm sometimes praying for specific people that are come to mind as I'm preparing the word of God to preach to God's people. And I see that as an act of service to you and pray that it brings glory to God. In other words, preaching should be a work and a work of love aimed at building up the church to the glory of God. But speaking gifts are different than the other gifts of this kind here, aren't they? See, I believe that we never need to lose sight of the importance of God's word because if we are preaching rightly the word of God, it ought to give life, ought to give life to the kinds of service that we see in our body, to the ways that our people are stirring one another towards love and good works. We can never lose that proclamation of the word that hopefully reverberates in the body to the end of making us that glorious, vibrant, loving people that calls attention to the power of the gospel. See, I believe if where the word is rightly taught and preached, it will give birth to the kinds of acts of service that are spoken here. But catch this. The gifts of service are just as much dependent on God. Uh, notice that they too are empowered by God. So you might be thinking, well, preaching is, that's, that's spirit inspired. But I actually help change diapers in the nursery. I actually help prepare, prepare meals for those who are sick. And I don't know if like the spirits is engaged in that activity. Well, from Peter's perspective, he would say, look, actually he is. Like notice, notice what he says. He says that whoever serves, serves as one, don't miss this if you're a servant heart, who serves by the strength that God supplies. Do you see that? Do you know how many like spirit infused chicken pot pies we've had made in this congregation? Like I'm you're jo- you think I'm joking, but like the Spirit is leading you to do that as an act of love to somebody who is in need to the glory of God. It is no little thing. You know what I think happens? I think Satan like mocks us whenever we're trying to make chicken pot buys and do normal things to the glory of God. And he says, this is such a small thing. It's so insignificant. And it could be the very thing that brings life to someone who is dying spiritually and sad. Spirit, doing things in you, supplying you with strength, to do those things that you think are so small and insignificant. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians 2, who tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Work hard at your salvation. But then, do you remember what he says? For it is God who is at work in you, doing all kinds of things, but bringing about salvation and all the, the beautiful work that comes out of that. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for as God is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. God's at work in us, even in those moments that seem so mundane. And in fact, those mundane moments when we're rubbing shoulder with crazy people is usually when God is doing mostly and most of his beautiful work amongst us. See, the purpose of all this is to point us towards our dependence on God is that last day is coming. 
It's all in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, in, in this little part where he says, in order that in God everything might be glorified through Jesus Christ, I think there are a couple of really quick implications. The first is this. Notice he says that in everything, God may be glorified. Everything. Everything. Every thought. Every word. Every act of service. Everything. All glory. Every bit of it goes to God. Do you hear that? It's all to God. It is, it is not us. It's not to us, O Lord, but unto your name be the glory. Uh, Peter says, here, I believe very clearly, don't piggyback on the glory of God. Don't do it. It's a dangerous place to be. This is the same Peter who likely discussed with the disciples which of them would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And here he says, don't piggyback on the glory of God. Personal experience, been there, thought about it, got the t-shirt, I burned it. It doesn't work. See, this is the same Peter who played with that. But catch this, Peter knew something about attempting to piggyback on the glory of God and seeing gifts as an opportunity to become puffed up. God gives gifts of service for the glory of God and for the good of others as well. I I long that we be a church more and more that encourages others and notices evidences of God's grace. And I believe that the way that you do that, that you can actually encourage people about the way that you see God using them, is talk about the way that it points them to Christ. In other words, don't stop at, like, that was awesome. Like, stop at, that was awesome because it made me think about the love that Christ has for me. Or it just made more clear the way that God's glory has been displayed in the scriptures in a way that just really captivated me. Thank you for helping me in that way today. Thank you for bringing me that, that meal. It reminded me that the, the love of Jesus is real. That it's not something we just talk about. It's something that actually takes hold of us and changes us and shapes us. Do you see that? When it reframes the way that we we talk and giving glory to Christ? It's going to take time to figure that out, guys. But we want to, in all things, be an encouraging body who notices evidences of grace, yet while giving God all of the glory. You know, it is not to the end of building up self-esteem, but building up the church to the glory of God in Christ. Now, with that said, we need to be careful about piggybacking on God's glory. Now, how do we do that? I think we can do that with our word gifts and our service gifts. So let me just give you some questions to help you look at your heart and ask, are there ways in which I need to shift things around because maybe I've just, without noticing it, started to piggyback a little bit? You know, I'm hoping that we share all good things with those who teach us, as as James said, and that we are encouraging others to preach the word I hope that we're not like Charles Simeon's church where they used to throw tomatoes from, uh, at him when he first started to preach. I hope it's not like that. I hope you all did not bring tomatoes today. But when you preach or teach, how much time do you spend in prayer for yourself and the people that you're going to be teaching? It's just a great first step of asking, is this really about me or about God and what God needs to do? You know, that's dependence on God, not yourself. And if you're a teacher listening to another teacher, You have a gift of teaching and you're listening to other teachers. Do you notice in your heart just a a really automatic tendency to get angry or jealous that others receive encouragement for a lesson or a sermon? Does that that gnaw at you? Does that corrode your soul? Do you begin to tear it down, that other teaching? Or do you revel in God's people being encouraged towards God? Like, which one is it? And as a teacher, do you look to learn from other teachers and search for ways to encourage them 
who share this gift set. If you're a professional Bible teacher, do you use your gifts to serve the church? I'm so grateful for the men in our congregation who do that. Do you get angry when you don't get the praise that you ought? Do you seek feedback from those you trust so you can grow, even things that you're not doing well? Or are you really worried about how others think about you to the degree that you don't want to get any kind of negative feedback? And how active are you about seeking to train uh, others to preach or to be trained? Are you just looking for a room to listen to you? See, preaching and teaching God's words are not ultimately about self-esteem. And we want to be life-giving without ever losing light or sight of the only giver of life. Now, here's a good question. At the end of the day, when you teach, do you aim to leave people, leaving your sermon, thinking what a great preacher or what a great savior? What is it you want them to be left with? And what about gifts of service? You know, some think that you need a survey to figure out what gifts of service you have. Um, Let me just say that I think gifts are best discovered in community. And it might be that you have some gifts that are highlighted in one community, and it might be different in another depending on who you are and who they are. But your blind spots might actually hinder you from knowing the way in which you are encouraging to others. So, do you think it's possible to piggyback on God's glory in the area of serving like our deacon roles? Is that possible? Or, or generosity, or greeting, or serving in children's ministry? Could it be that even there, you might find yourself trying to grasp for some glory for yourselves, even amongst the diapers? Well, when you give generously, do you think God owes you? Or do you feel like if you give more money than others because you are able, that that translates into you feeling like you're actually a more generous person? Or when you serve, do you grow weary in doing good? Is it because you're doing too much? Could it be that maybe sometimes we grow weary in doing good because our season of life has changed to the degree that we need to take a break, but we keep going because we think that God needs us? Do you prefer to serve when others are watching than when they are not? Now, don't get me wrong. It's really a lot more fun to serve with other people. That's not bad. But are you looking for an audience? And if you're a deacon, do you look to bring others alongside you to train them And entrust them with ministry so that you are making yourself replaceable. That's a great way to show that you trust God above all else. Well, our last point shortly is this. Our community exists to exalt our eternal King Jesus. Uh, Notice that he ends in that last part of verse 11 saying, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love the doxology that ends verse 11. Thoughts on the church loving one another puts everything in proper perspective for him as he faces the end of all things. This world may end. But God has invited us into a story that has no end. Did you catch that? He started off with the end of all things, and then he ended with forever and ever the glory of God. I love this. It's a story that climaxes in the glory of God and his reign forever and ever and ever, and he could go on and on and on. And then he says, amen. That is how it ends, forever and ever and ever. It does not end. And that's how all things end for Christians. The end of all things isn't artificial intelligence wiping out humanity or a plague or a solar flare. It's the glory of God displayed in a new humanity with new bodies and a new creation that, catch this, never ends or fades. Isn't that a good day to look forward to? That's a great day. Even at lunchtime. And this is the unique hope of the Christian. The glory of God and our enjoyment of him forever. Let's pray.